It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning, especially because there are some friendly, familiar faces. Uh, Chris Matias, who rolled down from Ossining some years ago. John Dakin, who uh, spoke eloquently at my society several years ago and with whom I shouldn't say I shared some beers at an AU assembly. Um, and it's a small world. I was, shall I say, accosted by a gentleman who asked me if indeed my mother was his English teacher at the Bronx High School of Science. So Doug, thank you very much for connecting me <laughs> with my past. Um, I would also like to say thanks to Amanda and Peter for being such gracious and friendly hosts, but I really want to say an especial thanks to Marcella for her companionship and um, unstoppable entertainment value, <laughs> and truly for her company. This morning, as I was going over my notes, I sat in an easy chair in the guest bedroom, and she brought in her little chair, put it down next to me, and shared her lollipop. <laughs> I got my licks in. So it really, it really is a pleasure. Today, I'm going to try to introduce you to Alain Locke. He's a man I encountered only a few years ago, and he should be better known. He lived from 1885 to 1954. He was born in Philadelphia. He stood five feet, two inches tall, and never, and the, yeah, right on. Maybe you have a career at the Supreme Court, Shorty. He weighed about 100 pounds. He went to Harvard College. He was the first black Rhodes Scholar. He did his PhD in philosophy at Harvard. He was a professor at Howard University for about four decades. And he was the philosophical muse of the Harlem Renaissance. He was also a philosopher of cultural pluralism, an idea that's just as important now as it was 100 years ago. And his life and work were touched by ethical culture. So today what I'd like to do is first give a brief biography of Locke, then offer a sense of his philosophy, and finally talk about my detective work, Elementary My Dear Watson, connecting Alain Locke to the ethical culture movement. The information comes primarily from a relatively new biography of Locke by Leonard Harris and Charles Molesworth my reading of lots of articles by Locke and articles about Locke, the help of Mark Bernstein, the American Ethical Union archivist in New York, and the absolutely invaluable support of Joellen Elbashir at Howard University. I hope Joellen is here, but I don't know. Is Joellen here? No, I invited her. Uh, if she were here, she would get an unwanted kiss. I should say that I began my dissertation in clinical psychology with the acknowledgement, man's best friend is not the noble dog, but the reference librarian. <laughs> and I mean that truly. <laughs> is there a librarian in the house? Yes! <laughs> Watch out, I'll kiss you instead of Joellen. <laughs> Alain Locke was born on September 13th, 1885. And he wrote of himself that he was born to, quote, 
native Philadelphians and school teachers, and thus into smug gentility. His parents were teachers. His father was also a graduate of the Howard University Law Department, although the father died when Locke was six. He was an only child. He suffered from rheumatic fever. And he said his parents had a, quote, fixation on their one and only. Let me read some passages from autobiographical notes that Miss Al-Bashir gave to Professor Harris and he put into his book. Locke says of himself, I was a self-centered, rather selfish, and extremely poised child, mature enough, even before my father's death, to be indifferent to others and what they did or thought. I would not accept money or gifts from other people, no matter how tempting. Was trained to be extremely polite, but standoffish with others. I was unusually obedient, but never had any unreasonable conditions to put up with, since most things were explained to me beforehand. Relations with mother, though deeply affectionate, were unemotional in outward expression. I would, for example, hug her waist on meeting her, but rarely remember kissing until we got home and she had taken off her hat, coat, and washed. It was a household where we washed interminably. And except to keep from open offense to others, I was taught to avoid kissing or being kissed by outsiders. If it happened, I would as soon as possible without being observed, find an excuse for using my handkerchief, often spitting surreptitiously into it if kissed too openly. My wise and loving mother dipped me as a very young child in the magic waters of cold cynicism and haughty distrust and disdain of public opinion and died with satisfaction of an almost hurt-proof child. The poignancy in those notes about himself. He graduated from Central High School in Philadelphia in 1902 and applied to Haverford College outside Philadelphia where he was rejected. He apparently passed Latin but somehow managed to fail algebra and plain geometry. I thus, alas, cannot claim him as a college mate. He went to the Philadelphia School of Pedagogy from 1902 to 1904 and then went to Harvard College where he graduated magna cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa. He was the first black Rhodes Scholar and went to Oxford, where four or five Oxford colleges turned him down, and finally one allowed him residence. At Oxford, he began to develop the themes of his life, themes of both universal and particular identity. He was, for example, a founder of the Cosmopolitan Club, which existed, quote, to promote mutual knowledge and sympathy between members of different nationalities residing at Oxford and removing many a narrow national or racial prejudice by coming into contact with new ideas and ways of thought. But he was also a founder of the African Union Society, which existed, quote, to meet, oh, excuse me, to meet for the general discussion and interchange of special and personal knowledge concerning the unhappy fatherland and for the cultivation of thought and social intercourse between its members as prospective leaders of the African race. Oxford was exciting but not always easy. The American students at Oxford 
always had a Thanksgiving dinner. Their 1907 Thanksgiving dinner was featured by their not inviting Alan Locke to join them. After Oxford, he spent a year studying in Berlin, and then in 1912 took a position at Howard University where he taught for four decades. He took a couple of years off, 1916 to 18, to return to Harvard to earn his PhD with a thesis called The Problem of Classification in Theory of Value. His mother, Mary Locke, moved to Boston to be with him while he went to Harvard. And she lived with him there and in Washington, D.C. for the rest of her life. She also traveled to Europe with him most summers until her death. Locke's career was a career of prolific writing and frequent travel. As an example, in 1924, he was in Egypt to be at the opening of the tomb of Tutankhamun. His writings include countless essays, articles, and reviews from 1904 to 1954. For now, let me just mention The New Negro, 1925, which became the emblem of the Harlem Renaissance. It's a book that's still in print and worth reading. Locke solicited the contributions for that collection of essays. He edited the essays, and he wrote several essays and the introduction himself. The book is a collection of fiction, poetry, photographs of works of visual art, and essays on literature, music, art, sociology, and education. The authors, just to name a few, included Zora Neale Hurston, County Cullen, Claude McKay, Jean Toomer, Langston Hughes, W.E.B. Du Bois, and James Weldon Johnson, who many of us know as the author of Lift Every Voice and Sing, often called the Negro National Anthem, and I want to tell you James Weldon Johnson, from 1919 to 1934, a member of the New York Society for Ethical Culture. Here is his membership card. Locke wrote the introduction and several essays for The New Negro. His goal was to fashion for black people in America a usable past, especially cultural and aesthetic in order to better grasp and participate in the present and to enjoy greater autonomy and expression in the future. It was his belief that black artists and writers should know and utilize their identity and ethnicity in their art, yet strive to attain universal human meaning and communication. So let me give an example or two of what he was saying. With regard to music, Locke wrote, the spirituals are really the most characteristic product of the race genius as yet in America. But the very elements which make them uniquely expressive of the Negro make them at the same time deeply representative of the soil that produced them. Thus, as unique spiritual products of American life, they become nationally as well as racially characteristic. It may not be readily conceded now that the song of the Negro is America's folk song, but if the spirituals are what we think them to be, a classic folk expression, then this is their ultimate destiny. Already they give evidence of this classic quality through their immediate and compelling universality of appeal, through their untarnished beauty, they seem assured of the immortality of those great folk expressions that survive not so much through being typical of a group or representative of a period, 
as by virtue of being fundamentally and everlastingly human. They have escaped the lapsing conditions and the fragile vehicle of folk art and come firmly into the context of formal music. Only classics survive such things. So note again, rooted in particularity, rooted in a folk experience, comes a classic form which becomes universal. As a second example, in his essay called The Legacy of the Ancestral Arts, Locke writes, the legacy is there with prospects of a rich yield. In the first place, there is in the mere knowledge of the skill and unique mastery of the arts of the ancestors, the valuable and stimulating realization that the Negro is not a cultural foundling without his own inheritance. If the forefathers could so adroitly master these mediums, why not us? What the Negro artist of today has most to gain from the arts of the forefathers is perhaps not cultural inspiration or technical innovations, but the lesson of a classical background, a lesson of discipline, of style, of technical control, pushed to the limits of technical mastery. Notice again how interestingly he talks about art. He's talking about art of a particular culture, of a particular community, and talks about it with the same kind of art, historical, critical eye that anyone else would talk about the classic arts of the Western world. Note also the echoes of his work at Oxford. Cosmopolitanism and particularism in some harmonious blend. What he suggests is that from folk experience arises art and classic forms of art which show us that from particular experience we can move to universal humanity. And also, he emphasizes, classic forms of art which deserve both the respect, both the respect and the critical evaluation accorded any art form from any period or culture. Locke was an avid collector of African art. At that point in American history, in the early 20th century, African art was not in art museums, but in anthropological and ethnographical collections, considered as artifacts of primitive peoples. Locke was one of the first to bring African art into galleries and museums. Continuing with the biography, the Dictionary of American Negro Biography in 1982 concludes its article on Locke by saying, his recurrent heart trouble struck him in the spring of 1954, and he died on June 9, 1954, in Mount Sinai Hospital. The biography, Dictionary of Biography adds, he had never married. The new biography, written by Harrison Molesworth, includes many letters from Harvard on, many of them in the coded language of homosexuals of the time. There are letters about his relationship with a man called Philip. There are flirtatious letters to and from several poets of the Harlem Renaissance. But most poignant is the conclusion of that biographical note I read before. Remember, his loving mother died with the satisfaction of having a hurt-proof child. That note continues. However, the all-too-vulnerable Achilles heel of homosexuality, which she may have suspected was there, 
both for her sake and my own safety, I kept in an armored shoe of reserve and haughty caution. I realized that to bask in the sunshine of public favor, I would have to bathe in the dangerous pool of publicity. You can only imagine what it was like to be a 100-pound, 5'2", PhD, Greek, Latin, German, French-speaking, black, homosexual man in America. Locke supported most of the writers of the Harlem Renaissance, but he also wrote reviews of their work, and he was quite frank in his criticism. Remember, he's talking about critiquing works of art, not just reveling in their folk roots. As a result, he was not always loved. Claude McKay once described Locke as a pussy-footing professor. Jesse Fawcett said that his articles were stuffed with a pedantry which fails to conceal their poverty of thought. And Zora Neale Hurston wrote that Locke is, quote, a malicious, spiteful little snot that that thinks he ought to be the leading Negro because of his degrees, close quote. But again, most poignantly, in a memorial address by his colleague at Howard, Eugene C. Holmes, Professor Holmes compared Locke with George Santayana, one of Locke's teachers at Harvard. There was to friends who knew both men rather well a certain resemblance between Alain Locke and George Santayana. Each professed a philosophic faith, which, however diverse from the others, was at one with it in the spirit of friendly hospitality to all sorts and conditions of men and ideas. Each had multitudes of acquaintances, yet hardly any intimates. Each was a man alone, personally uncommitted, and essentially lonely. I'm sorry, Mark, I'm not used to having ear things. And as I said, if I swat the bug on my mouth, it's because I think it's a mosquito. Let me talk a little bit about Locke's philosophy. He said of himself that he was more of a philosophical midwife to a generation of younger Negro poets, writers, and artists than he was a professional philosopher. And in fact, there are only a handful of articles in technical philosophy, while there are scores and scores of essays and reviews on literature and art. But his philosophical essays talked about cultural pluralism. And just to give you a sense of his thought, I'm going to compress four or five articles. Let me try to summarize, give you a flavor of his thought. He begins one of his essays by writing, all philosophies, it seems to me, are an ultimate derivation, philosophies of life and not of abstract, disembodied, quote, objective reality, products of time, place, and situation, and thus systems of timed history rather than timeless eternity. You can hear the echoes of William James and American pragmatism in those words. And James was also one of the teachers at Harvard when Locke was studying there. What Locke is saying is that philosophy is not the discovery of eternal, unchanging truth, but rather a process rooted in a time and a place of trying to understand experience. He rejects metaphysical absolutes. But even if we reject metaphysical absolutes, Locke says we have to recognize that we live by imperatives. 
We all say we should, we ought, we must. And those imperatives are shaped by our values. Because we value things, we create imperatives. Unfortunately, he tells us, we act as if our values and therefore our imperatives are universal, unchanging, and applicable to all people. It's truly tragic and ironic, as he says, what may be the most common attitude of humanity, our loyalty to culture and values, is the basis of the deepest misunderstanding and most violent conflict. Our absolutes are rationalizations of our preferred values and their imperatives. And so he says, we need to demonstrate philosophically and through the social sciences, three points. First, that values are rooted in attitudes, not in realities. That values arise from temperamental, experiential, and cultural differences. And that values pertain to ourselves, not to the world. If we can recognize those three points, then we can voice our values as preferences, tolerantly. We no longer have to insist on agreement or arbitrary unity and conformity. We can have value loyalty without bigotry. And we can achieve, in one of his wonderful phrases, harmony in contrariety. Locke uses a lovely image. He suggests that we think about reality as being like a white light that shines through the prism of human nature and human experience and then becomes a spectrum of values. It's a really lovely image. Values are not realities, but preferences deriving from our different experiences of reality. And that means that we can study, compare, evaluate, and indeed judge values. First, Locke suggests we need to look for equivalencies and the obscured commonalities of values. And second, we need to evaluate the adaptiveness of values. We can judge values in those two ways. Let me give some examples from my own reading, not from Locke's. Richard Schwader talks about an Indian temple community where people were asked to rate 40 kinds of behavior. The most bad, the moderately bad, and the okay. In that list, one of the not too bad behaviors was beating your wife black and blue when she's disobedient. Makes us wince, doesn't it? That wasn't so bad. In the middle of badness was failing to give alms to the poor. But most bad was eating chicken the day after your father dies. Right? Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Sounds ridiculous. It sounds like they're radically different values until you understand that in that Indian temple community, one's father's soul could not find rest if one ate chicken the day after his death. The value equivalence is honor thy father and mother, isn't it? If we are honoring our father as a strong commandment, we don't eat chicken. Now, I'm not sure I can find the equivalence in beating one's wife black and blue, but the point is the cultural values often have hidden 
obscured commonalities. Another study that's interesting in terms of adaptiveness is the study that Larry Nucci did with Roman Catholic, Amish, and Jewish children. And I'll, again, summarize these studies very, very briefly. Your mom probably knows them, Amanda. If we ask Roman Catholic school children and college students, your religion, Roman Catholic religion, says women shouldn't preach in the pulpit, um, you shouldn't steal, shouldn't kill, shouldn't use birth control, shouldn't say bad things about people. And all the Roman Catholic elementary school kids and college students say, yeah, that's true. And then you say to them, if the Pope and the College of Cardinals were to say, it's okay to use birth control, would it be okay? And they all say, yeah, sure, it would be okay. What about women preaching the pulpit? If the Pope said women could preach, sure, that would be okay then. What about if the Pope said it's okay to steal? Would that be okay then? No. Even if the Pope said it was okay, it would still be wrong. What about saying bad things about people? If the Pope said it's okay to say bad things about people, no, it would still be wrong. Similar questions were asked, for example, of Amish school children. The Amish take St. Paul seriously and the women cover their hair. Would it be okay if the elders of the Amish tradition said it was okay to uncover a girl's hair? Well, sure, then it'd be okay. Would it be okay if the Amish elders said it's okay to say bad things about people? It would still be wrong. Connecting Nucci's psychological studies and Alain Locke, the point is that for us as a species, in terms of adaptation, to not kill, to not steal, to not say bad things is clearly adaptive. To cover our hair or restrict women from preaching is a matter of convention, not of true deep morality. So we can evaluate values looking at their adaptive quality. Let me now connect a landlock to ethical culture. I should put on my deerstalker hat and my Mackinac or something, no, Macintosh, right? Um, and call up uh, John Dakin as my Watson. <laughs> this took months of detective work, which I will share with you in a few moments. The Dictionary of American Negro Biography, which I quoted before, points out that, quote, Mary Locke, Locke's mother, supporting the family by teaching, was a disciple of Felix Adler and sent her son to one of the pioneering ethical culture schools. The new biography, Harrison Molesworth, says that Mary Locke was devoted to the work of Felix Adler and his ethical culture movement, and also refers to Alan Locke being a member you are so kind, a cup of water. Thank you. Locke was a member of the Harvard Ethical Society, which existed briefly on the campus of Harvard University and was led by Morris Raphael Cohen. Well, I spoke to professors Harris and Molesworth. I actually accosted 
uh, Leonard Harris twice, once at the Human Bookstore in Harlem and once at a lecture at Columbia University, because they do not cite the box, file, and letter in which Mary Locke talks about her interest in ethical culture. Leonard Harris apologized graciously and said, well, I was really citing what Locke said when I quoted him, and so I didn't cite Mary Locke when I just referred to her. When I called Joellen Elbashir um, at Howard, she's one of the archivists, she said I was welcome to come and go through Mary Locke's letters. But there are probably a dozen portophile boxes of letters, each containing dozens of folders, each folder containing dozens of letters. She invited me to spend a week in the archives. Well, there are some easy connections, all right? So we're looking for smoking guns or leaking pens, I suppose is a more appropriate metaphor. There is an easy connection. On May 18th, 1947, Alain Locke delivered an, a platform address called World Citizenship, Mirage or Reality at the New York Society for Ethical Culture. Mark Bernstein, our archivist, found that for us. I sent it to Professors Molesworth and Harris and to the Howard Archives. They did not have copies of that address. So we're sharing our scholarship. There's a volume, a published volume of papers from the Second Conference on the Scientific Spirit and Democratic Faith held at the New York Society, chaired by Jerome Nathanson, one of the New York Society's leaders. John Dewey delivered a paper, Horace Fries, an ethical culture leader, delivered a paper, and Alain Locke commented on that paper. He was at that conference. Locke was also, in 1911, at the first Universal Races Congress in London, which was suggested by and supported by Felix Adler, who became, with W.E.B. Du Bois, the co-secretaries of that international congress. And there's an undated manuscript, mimeographed, some of you are too young to remember the mimeograph. It's called Freud and Modern Morality, and the typeface, it's missing its cover sheet, but the typeface is identical to the 1947 address, so my hunch is that that was also an address given at the New York Society. But whether or not it was given at the Society, it opens with this statement. From long and congenial association with various branches, various branches of the Society for Ethical Culture. I know I need not make apology for my subject, Freud and morality. He also refers to the members of ethical societies, all of us, as a hardy-minded group of seekers after truth. Yes. But there's this bit about an ethical culture school in Philadelphia. So I called the Philadelphia Society and spoke with my colleague, Richard Canary, who's leader there, and he said, I didn't know we had a school. Now, although he is uh, aging in place, as I am, uh, he's not that old. However, once again, through Mark Bernstein, our archivist, we were able to locate a Philadelphia Ethical Society 50th anniversary publication. And it reports that in 1886, the society started a school. The school closed after only a few years, maybe five to 10 years, because it was too expensive to maintain. But a branch school, which was self-supporting, continued for somewhat longer. 
and I actually have the addresses of those schools. And when I go to Philly, we're going to try to take a little side trip and see what's there now. It is possible then that Locke did attend the Philadelphia Ethical Culture School in his early years. In addition, Eugene C. Holmes, his colleague at Howard, whom I mentioned before, wrote a, uh, an essay in memory of Locke in the Journal of Negro Education. He also says that Locke was sent by his mother Mary to an ethical culture school. Two items are even more striking. Try to track down a copy of The Teacher from April 1904. Reference librarians are man's best friend. In The Teacher of 1904, when Locke was 19, he published his first article. It is probably his thesis from the Philadelphia School of Pedagogy. And it's called Moral Training in Elementary Schools. In that essay, at the age of 19, he quotes Felix Adler, calling Adler a specialist in this field. In the passage he quotes, Adler says, the main aim of education is to develop character. And finally, in Locke's sometimes impenetrable hand, there are some scribbled notes about his scholarship career in which he lists endorsements and references for a scholarship he's applying for. His endorsers and references include both Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, which is an achievement in itself, as well as Josiah Royce and George Santayana and Dr. Felix Adler. It's clear then, from young adulthood, possibly from early childhood, Locke knew, was touched by, and participated with the Society for Ethical Culture. Here is a copy of his scholarship paper with lists of the people who endorsed him. In conclusion then, let me say that when I heard of Alain Locke just a few years ago, I thought, why haven't I known of him before? In my reading, I came increasingly to want to introduce him to other people. And I hope you have found him of interest. If any of you have a week or two to go to Howard University archives and go through Mary Locke's letters, I would appreciate finding the letters in which she talks about ethical culture. Locke was a staunch advocate of group identity and pride, and a spokesman for all humanity, for a cosmopolitan appreciation and interchange among all individuals and groups. He knew and voiced the truth that there is no scientific basis for the concept of race. Race is a social construct. And he knew that cultures are complex, hybrid, historical phenomena formed not in isolation, but by contact between groups. He knew as well that ideas like race can lead to terrible discrimination and harm. But he never became, to use his own term, a racialist. Indeed, in a lecture to, the, to a fraternity at Howard in 1949, he reminded his listeners that five of the collaborators in The New Negro were white whose readily accepted passport 
was competent understanding of the cultural objectives of the movement and creative participation in them. His combination of cultural pride, cultural pluralism, and critical edge are manifest in this excerpt from a review of several books on Africana. Consider the evidence objectively. Some African creation myths are as good or meaningful as any, Genesis included. And some African fables are, even in their moral values, equal to the parables of the New Testament. Considering the billions of dollars worth of psychological damage, missionary and racist misconceptions of Africa and the African have wrought on both countless Negro and Caucasian minds. Books such as these, which he's reviewing, though relatively expensive, are cheap and welcome antidotes, good medicine for the mind diseased. And hearing those words, hear the words of Felix Adler in his 1911 address to the Universal Races Con Conference, which, remember, Locke also attended. In his 1911 address, Adler said, we have inflicted incalculable spiritual harm upon the nations of the East by undermining the religious foundations upon which their civilization has rested. Adler calls for a conception based on reciprocity of cultural influences, favorable to the greatest possible variety of types and assuring to the different groups of mankind their integrity as distinct members in order that they may make manifest the distinctive gifts with which nature has endowed them. I cannot help but believe that Locke was influenced by Adler's words. Both men saw and knew and preached a democratic worldview of differences in harmony, of reciprocity and growth, of life enhancing other life. Locke's thought, I think, is as important now as when he wrote. Almost 80 years ago, he asked, can we have the advantages of cultural differences without their obvious historical disadvantages? He wrote then, and we see now, both growing internationalism and terrible fragmentation, conflict along ethnic or even tribal lines. We saw the breaking apart and ethnic and religious conflict in the Balkans. We saw Tutsis and Hutus in Rwanda and Burundi. We see elections in an Iraq threatened with sectarianism and the ethnic forces of separation. Locke wrote, there is and always has been an almost limitless national reciprocity between cultures. Civilization, for all its claims of distinctiveness, is a vast amalgam of cultures. We need today Locke's perspective, a balance he began to feel at Oxford, a particular identity joyfully expressed, shared in a world of global appreciation and respect. A philosopher, an esthete, a muse, a cosmopolite, a complex, talented, and able man. A man, I think, we should recall. Again, through the kind and gracious work of Joellen Elbashir at Howard University, who faxed me so many wonderful documents. I have two passages in Locke's own hand 
with which I'd like to close. In the first, a note dated December 25th, 1948, Christmas Day, Locke wrote, I am sorry, but all my mind and temperament allow me for prayer is a hail to the source of life and a bow to the inscrutable. And from that same folder of autobiographical notes marked, quote, profound thoughts, close quote, there are these words we might wish for ourselves toward the end of our lives. I would choose, if I dared, only three adjectives for my life. Beautiful, humane, serene. Alain Locke.